Our Old Testament lesson this morning is from Isaiah 25, verses 1 through 9. Maybe we shouldn't have as interactive a sermon as we had children's sermon. All the rain we got last night, I'm sure everybody is just ready to spontaneously burst out and singing God's praises. But that's where we begin. Isaiah 25, verses 1 through 9. And as we begin, let us pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for this day. We thank you for the rain that we receive, and we thank you for the ways that you provide for everything that we need in your own perfect time. Lord, we pray that you would help us to be those who trust you in all things, who turn to you in times of distress, in times of joy, in times of sorrow, in times of excitement. God, that you would be the goal of our life. That everything that we do, everything that we say, would be centered on who you are and what you've done for us in Jesus Christ. Lord, we ask as we hear your word read and proclaimed this morning, God, that you would open our ears, that you would have already prepared our hearts Lord, that we would receive this word from you, and that by your word and by your spirit, you would continue your work of transforming us into the people that you created us to be, in and through Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. Isaiah 25, verses 1 through 9. O Lord, you are my God. I will exalt you and praise your name, for in perfect faithfulness you have done marvelous things, things planned long ago. You have made the city a heap of rubble, the fortified town a ruin, the foreigner's stronghold a city no more. It will never be rebuilt. Therefore, strong peoples will honor you. Cities of ruthless nations will revere you. You have been a refuge for the poor, a refuge for the needy in his distress, a shelter from the storm and a shade from the heat. For the breath of the ruthless is like a storm driving against a wall, and like the heat of the desert. You silence the uproar of foreigners, as heat is reduced by the shadow of a cloud. So the song of the ruthless is stilled. On this mountain, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples, a banquet of aged wine, the best of meats and the finest of wines. On this mountain, he will destroy the shroud that enfolds all peoples the sheet that covers all nations. He will swallow up death forever. The sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces. He will remove the disgrace of his people from all the earth. The Lord has spoken. In that day, they will say, surely this is our God. We trusted in him and he saved us. This is the Lord. We trusted in him. Let us rejoice and be glad in his salvation. Turning then to Matthew chapter 25, verses 31 through 46. Jesus speaking with his disciples says, When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his throne in heavenly glory. 
All the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate the people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. I needed clothes, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you looked after me. I was in prison, and you came to visit me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in, or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go to visit you? The king will reply, I tell you the truth. Whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers of mine... You did for me. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger, and you did not invite me in. I needed clothes, and you did not clothe me. I was sick and in prison, and you did not look after me. They also will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry, or thirsty, or a stranger, or needing clothes, or sick, or in prison, and did not help you? He will reply, I tell you the truth. Whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, you did not do for me. And they will go to a way to a, then they will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. And then our sermon text for this morning from 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 1 through 10. We've been looking at what it means to be living and delivering the good news of Jesus. And while next week we will look more at delivering that news, this week we look more at what it means to be living that good news. Chapter 5 of 2 Corinthians, verses 1 through 10. Because now we know that if the earthly tent we live in is destroyed, we have a building from God, an eternal house in heaven. Not built by human hands. Meanwhile, we groan, longing to be clothed with our heavenly dwelling. Because when we are clothed, we will not be found naked. For while we are in this tent, we groan and are burdened because we do not wish to be unclothed, but to be clothed with our heavenly dwelling, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. Now it is God who has made us for this very purpose. And has given us the spirit as a deposit, guaranteeing what is to come. Therefore, we are always confident and know that as long as we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. We live by faith, not by sight. We are confident, I say, and would prefer to be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So we make it our goal to please him, whether we are at home in the body or away from him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ that each one may receive what is due him for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, as I say, we're looking at what it means to be living the good news of Jesus this morning. And we start with the good news of our earthly tent being destroyed which doesn't sound like very good news 
When he's talking about the earthly tent we live in, he's talking about our bodies, our mortal bodies, and how every one of us has an appointment with death. And this doesn't seem like good news, especially if you are looking at it from the worldview of a strict materialist. The things that are here are all that is here. Everything that we can see and touch is all there is, and there's nothing more beyond that. If that is your view, when you approach the subject of death, you end in despair. And in fact, when you read through the book of Ecclesiastes, it very much reads like the modern materialist worldview with this refrain of, I looked at everything under the sun and everything was meaningless. Everything is meaningless. Because the same thing ends up happening with everybody. We all die in the end. And so you have someone who works hard all their life and they accumulate just a mass of wealth. And then they die. Or you look at somebody who has a, a brain that can hold all sorts of information and they learn and they learn and they learn and they learn so much. And in the end, they die. And you look at people who go after the worldly pleasures of this life and they chase after all this and in the end, they die. I'm starting to remind myself of my own mother at this point who we used to make fun of when we were children because it seemed that every story she would tell about anybody she had known would always end with the words, and then they died. <laughs> like, Mom, you, you're the most depressing storyteller ever. Tell the whole story and would be engaged right up there to the end, and then they died. <laughs> no, don't do that. We want to at least, at least live with the possibility they lived happily ever after. That's how fairy tales are supposed to go, right? But no, as Ecclesiastes points out, as my mother trained me well, we all have an appointment with death. And that will be how all of our stories, whatever it is that we are building on, that's how they end. And then they died. Except that's not how they end. And that's the good news. In fact, even Ecclesiastes, when you get to the end of the book, doesn't end with, so everything is meaningless. It is, and therefore... Fear God and obey his commandments. Because there's a sense of which that is where life comes from. And as Paul points out to the church in Corinth, we know that in the end we die. We try to push that thought away from us, especially in today's culture. We don't want to think about it. We don't want to have anything to do with the idea of death because we don't want to face our own mortality. We don't want to have to come to grips with the idea that we are going to die. And yet, every time we're faced with it again and again, there's a sense in which we long for something else. Not for death to be the end. But he says we have... A message of life after death. We have a message that says, when this earthly tent is destroyed, the tent being that temporary dwelling, which we are now in, 
We have a building from God, eternal in the heavens. Uh, An eternal house in heaven not built by human hands. And so we do have something we are looking forward to. Where we realize that death is not the end. And it says that right now, what, what we do is we groan for it. We long for it. We look forward to that day when death is past and pain is ended. We look forward to the day when God wipes away every tear. When there is no more suffering, crying. Where we don't have to watch as our own bodies or as those of our loved ones wither and die. But we long for that day, I love this imagery, when what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. You remember in the book of Exodus we have several swallowings um, with Moses and also uh, in Genesis with, with Joseph. All in Egypt where Joseph goes to the Pharaoh who has this dream that we have the uh, scrawny cows and the fat cows and the scrawny cows swallow up the fat ones and yet they stay skinny. And we have uh, the same thing with the heads of grain that swallow up the other healthier heads of grain. And then in in Exodus with Moses, they throw down the staff and it turns into a snake. And the other magicians, ah, we can do that. And they throw down their staff, their staffs, and they turn into snakes. But then the staff of Moses goes and the snake goes over and swallows up the other ones. And then the others are no more. And that's the point. It's the point of all the dreams. It's the point of uh, the miracle. That that which is swallowed up is done. It's over. And only that which did the swallowing remains. And here it says what is mortal is going to be swallowed up by life. That is what we are longing for. And that is what we are hoping for. And that is what we are really betting our lives on. This is going to be the case. Paul tells us if it's only for this life that we're hoping in Jesus, we're the most to be pitied. We are betting our lives that there is more beyond. That one day, death will be swallowed up by life. What is mortal will be swallowed up by life. But this is not just a vain hope. This is not just something that we say, wouldn't that be great if this were the case? But it says, actually, God made us for this very purpose. And he's already given us his spirit as a deposit, guaranteeing what is to come. In other words, as we have the spirit of life in our bodies now, We look at what we talked about last week. Though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. As we see that work of inner renewal and inner transformation taking place because of the spirit of life, we say, if that's what he's doing now, if that's the deposit of what's to come, 
then we have a sure hope and we have confidence. That's what he says next. We are, therefore, we are always confident and know that as long as we are home in the body, we are away from the Lord. We live by faith, not by sight. We have his confidence because we already have experienced exactly what we would expect to experience if this were the case. That there is a life to come. That we were not made simply as mortals. But we were made to live forever. And yet, because of sin, we all must go through death first. When he says we live by faith and not by sight, this is That's how we're going to finish. I'm going to rearrange everything right now. We're going to skip on to the end and come back to that. If I don't, remind me later. <laughs> Because we are confident, I say, verse 8, and we prefer to be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So we make it our goal to please him, whether we are at home in the body or away from it. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive what is due him for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. Because we know what is coming, because we know there is life ahead, that our story does not end with, and then he died, or and then she died. But as C.S. Lewis tells us at the end of uh, the whole series of the Chronicles of Narnia, the whole of this life is like the end of just the first chapter of the greatest story that goes on for forever. And so the story doesn't end within they died. Only chapter one ends there. But then we turn the page. And we see that when we turn the page, the next thing we find is that we are with Jesus. That we are with Jesus for forever. Living an eternal resurrection life. And because we know that this is what's coming, we live in such a way that when it happens, we will not be ashamed. But more than that, we live in such a way now that we make it our goal to please, to live a life that is pleasing to God. To live a life that is pleasing to God. How do we do that? We live by faith and not by sight. Living a life of trust and dependence and obedience and fellowship. Tim Keller has a good story he tells about what it means, what it looks like to live by faith. He said, imagine, imagine you're a young woman, single, and you have just met the man of your dreams. He's asked you out on a date, and you are ecstatic. You said yes, but then between the time you said yes and the time of the date, you talked to 20 different friends of yours, close friends, who have all had personal contact with this guy. You know these women well, you trust them implicitly, and yet every single one of them comes to you independently and says, watch out for that guy. 
he is nothing but trouble. He will lead you on, and he will seem like everything is wonderful, but as soon as he starts to feel like you are falling for him, he's going to drop you. He's done it to a whole string of women before. Every single one of them thinks, I'm going to be different, and no one ever is. Now, what, is, what are you going to do if you're that woman? Your friends have a perfect track record. Of course you're going to believe what they say. And yet, you've already said you're going to go on the date, so of course you go. And on the date, he's wonderful. Everything about him is so charming and lovely and nice. And what happens is you start to doubt your friends. It's not that the evidence has changed. Everything that they said matches up with everything that's going on. And yet, this is what you have is an audio recording of your friends in your head. But you've got the video of this man playing right in front of you. And the video right in front of your eyes is so overpowering that you start to question the audio recording of your friends in your head. And you start to think to yourself, maybe I am different. Maybe I will be one of them. Maybe they're not right after all. And so he says, faith. That's what you need in this situation. Faith, to trust in your friends, despite what you're seeing in the sky. Not because you are believing in spite of the evidence, but because you're believing what's true in spite of appearances. Catch that. Faith is not believing in spite of evidence. Faith is believing what's true in spite of appearances. In our Sunday school class this morning, we were looking at uh, Jesus calming a storm and got to talking about the time when Peter says to Jesus, you know, if it's you, Lord, ask me to come to you on the water. And Jesus says, come. And Peter starts to walk on the water. For a little bit. And then he starts to look around. To look at the wind and the waves. And what happens? He's not walking on the water anymore. I asked I asked the students, do you remember what it was that Jesus called Peter when he, um, when he was sinking? And Benjamin said, yeah. The rock. (laughs) Which is hilarious. But um, it really makes me wonder. Maybe that's why Jesus called him Peter, the rock. He sank like a stone. But uh, no, he actually, in this instance, called him something else. He called him you of little faith. He sank not because of the wind and the waves. He was walking on the waves, through the wind. It wasn't the wind and the waves that were the problem. The problem is he quit walking by faith. He quit trusting in Jesus, looking to him as he walked. And as he turned to the distractions, he began to sink. And so when it says we live by faith and not by sight... And we make it our goal 
to please Him whether we are at home in the body or away from it. You know, look back to Matthew 25. When Jesus says to those uh, gathered, he separates them on his right and his left. And he says, you fed me when I was hungry. And they say, what are you talking about? I didn't feed you when you were hungry. Say, yes, you did. Because whenever, whatever you do for the least of these, brothers of mine, you do for me. And there are those who didn't. And what is the difference? It's those who are living by faith and not by sight. If we are living only to do for those who can do back for us, only if we're only doing for those that we decide are in some sense worthy of our doing for them, that's living by sight. We're told we live by faith. We trust that when God says that all people are created in His image, when He says that when we do for the least of these, we're doing for Him, because this person, whatever they look like on the outside, whatever they sound like, and how much that may conflict with what we were expecting, they're made in God's image. We treat them as such. And as we treat people as though they're made in God's image because he says they are, we're walking by faith. There are all sorts of ways to walk by faith. Give me two, two quick quotes. One quick, one a little longer. First by Donald Hagner. In word biblical commentary, he says, eschatology, that is the study of last things, end time sort of things. This is never presented for the sake of mere information, but always and consistently as the motivation for ethical living. It's pretty easy to look at a passage like this when we talk about what it's going to be like to appear before, uh, before the judgment seat of Christ and get distracted off why he's explaining this to us. To start thinking, that, oh, this must be because he wants to teach us about what that is like so that we can study what it's going to be like then so that we can make charts. I don't think it's for making charts. But it's a motivation for ethical living. He says, because we know that we're going to appear before the judgment seat of Christ, because we know that one day, though now we see dimly, as in a mirror, one day we will see face to face. You know that if you are separated from someone that you love, but you know that you will be joined together again, you want to live in such a way that between now and then, there will be mutual excitement when you are brought together in reunion. We live by faith and not by sight. We make it our goal to please him. George MacDonald, I've shared this quote before. It's one of my favorites. Someone might say, but I do not know how to awake and arise. To which he responds, I will tell you. Get up and do something the master tells you. And so make yourself his disciple at once. Instead of asking yourself whether you believe or not, 
Ask yourself whether you have this day done one thing because he said, do it. Or once abstained because he said, do not do it. It is simply absurd to say you believe or even want to believe in him. If you do not, anything he tells you. If you can think of nothing he ever said as having had an atom of influence on your doing or not doing, you have too good ground to consider yourself no disciple of his. But you can begin to be his disciple. To be a disciple of the living one. By obeying him in the first thing you can think of in which you are not obeying him. We must learn to obey him in everything and so must begin somewhere. Let it be at once. And in the very next thing that lies at the door of our conscience. O fools and slow of heart, if you think of nothing but Christ, and do not set yourselves to do his words, you but build your houses on the sand. This is what it looks like to live, to make it our goal to please him, and to walk by faith and not by sight. Not that we are earning our salvation by the things that we do. That has already been earned for us by what Jesus has done. There's nothing we can do to add to or subtract from that. But that if we really believe that he is who he says he is. If we really believe that death is not the end. But that one day what is mortal will be swallowed up by life. If we really believe that one day we will see him face to face. If we really believe that everything that we were created for was to be with God from the very beginning. That has been broken down by sin. But that that is the problem, the main problem that Jesus has come to fix. If we are really longing to be with God one day in his presence more so than we are right now. Do not think that might change how we live right now. One more quote. This one from Martin Luther, if I can find it. Martin Luther, when talking about how we are saved by the grace of God, that there is nothing that we can do to add to or subtract from that. Someone says, someone responded to him and said, Well, Dr. Luther, if I believed like you, I would do anything I please. To which Martin Luther replied, Exactly. And as a child of Christ, what pleases you? Hopefully what pleases us as children of Christ is that kind of living that we know would please God would be pleasing to Christ let us make it our goal to please him in all that we do living a life of faith, of trust of dependence, obedience and in close fellowship with God now and forever In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.